Be advised, Blue Rose Task Force is filled with secrets and spoilers. Welcome to the Blue Rose Task Force podcast, where we look deeply into Twin Peaks as a whole, one episode at a time, using the full scope of the show Twin Peaks and all of its media. We don't use the word canon, but we do consider all official releases important because Lynch and Frost have approved their presence, and we welcome all input into the collective consciousness that is the Twin Peaks community. So this podcast is a watch-along podcast for those who've seen all of Twin Peaks, Season 1, Season 2, Fire Walk With Me, and Season 3, aka The Return, uh, which we're going to consider as we go along and how it impacts the previous seasons. So today we're looking at the first overall episode of Twin Peaks, the pilot, often known as uh, Season 1, Episode 1, but also known as Northwest Passage, in the German regionalization, um, or episode zero, which can get confusing. I am your host, L, And I'm your host, John. In the Twin Peaks pilot, Pete Martell discovers the body of Laura Palmer and the seismic grief of events ripples through the whole town for a full half hour before battered and near catatonic Ronette Pulaski crosses a bridge and triggers the involvement of Kyle McLaughlin's best TV character of all time contender, Special Agent Dale Cooper. Cooper and Sheriff Truman investigate evidence, as we see it acquired, most notably from the Palmer house and the train car, and they question a number of townsfolk. While they do this, said townsfolk make their own plans, many of whom converge at the roadhouse at 9.30 p.m. despite the curfew Cooper instated during a town meeting, and the day's chaotic energy explodes into a brawl. Things lead to other things, and Sarah Palmer ends the episode having an upsetting vision in her house of the heart necklace James and Donna just buried in the woods being dug up by a suspicious gloved hand. Okay, so now that we're reacquainted with the plot of the episode, what kind of questions are we actually left with? Well, we're left with the question, what kind of presence is Laura Palmer? Who doesn't need to be told that Laura has died or that it was her that was the victim? What exactly is going on with Sarah Palmer and the Palmer house? Are there signs even at this early stage, of other timelines or frequencies. What is it about mirrors? Is Dale already in the Red Room? And how does delusion relate to the reality of Twin Peaks? Yeah, so that's a big mouthful. (laughs) I'm sure we could just solve all of it before the end of this, right? (laughs) Let's give it a good go. Okay, so now we're going to take a look behind the curtain and actually plant everything in historical context of what actually happened, because there's a lot of people that think David Lynch did absolutely everything, and it turns out it was actually a big group effort, and there's a lot of who's where and doing what at what time that um, could it could use with a little bit of uh, a clarification. Absolutely. 
1985, Lynch and Frost met through their mutual uh, their mutual agent, Tony Krantz. Um, you would you would kind of wonder, like, you know, Lynch is the surrealist. He's, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, he had a pretty solid reputation by that point. And um, what he had anything to do with for um, like why Tony Krantz would have thought that the guy who was like the big story editor on Hill Street Blues for about three years would have anything to do with David Lynch uh, and working. Um, it doesn't seem like a good match up front, but Frost is a Jungian. And uh, the more that I look into Carl Jung, it's all about dream interpretation. And it really explains a quote from uh, Tony Krantz in, in Reflections, An Oral History of Twin Peaks by Brad Dukes. Um, Krantz said that David had this vision that Mark could grab a hold of. And yeah, it, it just makes me think about dream interpretation. I just wonder if there was some off the record night in a jazz bar or in a, <laughs> day in a coffee shop where mm-hmm. Tony Krantz and uh, Mark Frost got into the deep and meaningfuls about the universe. And he just thought, <laughs> hang on, I know a guy who would love to have a cup of coffee with you and talk this, talk this through. So I do, in my mind, that's how I think they met. I would not be shocked. Yeah. Yeah. So after, um, after Blue Velvet was already completed, um, Lynch and Frost did start writing together. Um, the first thing they were working on was about a book called, I mean, they were going to adapt a book called Goddess. And that's Mm -hmm. about the final days of Marilyn Monroe. And at the time, I mean, she was like the iconic, uh, movie star. And, um, Mm. The reason why it got canned is because at the end, they were, uh, Lynch and Frost and the book all implied that the Kennedys were involved in her death. And at that point, the Kennedys were like the, um, uh, I don't know exactly if saint is the right word because I was only, you know, like about 10 at the time, but it seemed mm-hmm. like. You know, it's like Camelot. You know, it's like the big they were thing. Like the royal family. Yes. Yeah. It's it's US. it's very much like the royal family, and like mm-hmm. you can't imply them in the death of the biggest movie star of of the time. So it's not um, going to stop Dale Cooper wondering about it, though. Yeah, and it's not going <laughs> to stop uh, Lynch and Frost from trying to do it anyway, because I mean, they they like to shake up the system any chance they get, mm-hmm. and it was like right there in their first uh, in their first pairing. And it's such a shame it didn't come to fruition because Jessica Lang was oh. involved as Marilyn. <laughs> and that, I mean, peak peak Lang yeah. um, with the Frost and Lynch special recipe would have been a very mm-hmm. interesting project to see. But we might not be sat here today if that was the case. That's true. And another one that got away is called One Saliva Bubble. That was one where Lynch and Frost actually wrote the script together. And it's like this really weird, like it it had like lowbrow humor all over the place. And it also had a whole bunch of weirdness. And um, it's basically electricity strikes an airport when a whole bunch of people are in it. People are switching bodies. And uh, sometimes there's like personalities nested inside other people. And like they like change their behaviors. And it's it reminds me mm-hmm. of stuff that will show up later. Like, you know, even, 
even mm. um you know dougie in season three that kind of thing oh, or yeah. like just nesting personalities in general became such a big thing for them but yeah, it's really yeah. funny that it shows up in this comedy <laughs> mm. well you can see the the strands of, of the kind of some roots that started to take mm. even though these projects didn't come to pass yeah that for sure sounds like some some peaks energy yeah and that one was like six weeks away from shooting and they had steve martin and martin short attached to it it was gonna be it was gonna be like this really classic like oddball thing that would have been probably in line with raising arizona Except nice. that De Laurentiis Entertainment uh, went into a very quick bankruptcy and, uh, you know, like all the IP got shut mm. off and they couldn't access the rights anymore. So yeah. they, um, you know, <laughs> they got burned on it and they basically mm. had to figure out what to do next. And uh, mm. Tony Kranz basically suggested that, you know, why don't you look into television? Mm. So they write this thing called uh, The Lemurians. And um, Kranz said, Lemuria was sort of like Atlantis. It was considered a continent that vanished from the history of the Earth. Mm -hmm. And the Lemurians was a story about a bunch of FBI agents who used Geiger counters and other homemade detection devices to find Lemurians who were intent on rising up and taking over the Earth. Now, d doesn't that FBI uh, setup sound a little familiar? Definitely rings a few bells, yes. Yeah. And possibly even could come out after Twin Peaks yeah. and something called The X-Files, perhaps. Yep, absolutely. Mm. And Brandon Tartikoff over at NBC actually bought this thing, and he was all ready to go with it, but um, mm. he only wanted to make it a two-hour movie instead of something that could keep going. And right. Lynch actually backed out of this one. He wanted something that could go longer. So, um, mm. you know, back to the drawing board one more time, and this time... Mm. Um, Krantz says he suggested it, but I, I think it was probably organic between everybody that um, there's all these, like, all the people in Blue Velvet that weren't the main characters write a soap opera about them. Mm. Because soap operas, mm -hmm. you know, they go on forever. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, yeah. Yeah. So that that was basically the, the gist of what got uh, Northwest Passage started, which was the original, or North Dakota. And then Northwest Passage. That that's how the pitch got over to Chad Hoffman at ABC in August of 1988. And um, Hoffman, he already greenlit. Um, oh my gosh, <laughs> he already greenlit Thirty Something and China Beach. So this guy's got credit. And um, mm -hmm. you know he's just like entranced because David Lynch goes in there and he uses his hands and he's moving and he's like, there's this town and there's this wind. I mean, it's like a highly mythologized <laughs> story, but uh, Frost even says, you know, it's like, it's basically what he says it is. So like, you know, I, I don't know if Lynch was actually casting a spell to make it happen, but, <laughs> but they basically said, you know what? It's crazy. We don't really get it, but write the script. This is interesting. Yeah. And possibly, yeah, I think Frost would have really helped in that sense because they would have thought, okay, but yeah, Hill Street, Hill Street Blues mm -hmm. guy, he's going to ground this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but still blows my mind that it was greenlit, actually. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, it's great. It, it blows everybody's mind. Yeah, it's like Lynch, he basically told Dwayne Dunham, it's like, they're never going to air this. Let's just have some fun. <laughs> right. Yeah, maybe because they'd been burnt a few times. They were like, let's just write whatever we want and see. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, so they changed fun. history, mm-hmm. the t- history of TV forever. Absolutely. For sure. Yeah, but how to find a way into it? Well, uh, Mark Frost had these. Um, he he figured. I mean, you know, probably Hill Street Blues. I mean, crime investigation. He he initially mm-hmm. went to you know let let's make it start out around the investigation of a murder, and mm-hmm. um, he was remembering the um, there there was this unsolved murder back in. Um, upstate New York Mm -hmm. about Mm -hmm. a girl named Hazel Drew. And that's actually uh, being written about right now. Or, I mean, it's, it's a book that's coming out in the next couple months. It's called murder at Teal's pond. And it's by David Bushman and Mark Givens, who both have Mm -hmm. twin peak background, twin peaks, uh, authorship, uh, background, Mm -hmm. you know, David Bushman, he wrote twin peaks FAQ and Mark Givens worked on deer meadow radio, which is where I heard about it back in 2015. So I'm really excited to read the book. Mm. Um, (laughs) but then, um, in addition to that, uh, Mark Frost also had, um, when he was growing up in California, there was, uh, a family acquaintance. Um, one of, one of their kids, um, was murdered. So like he's he's kind of basing it around both of those kind of perspectives uh for how to get started with the story. And um how they actually went about writing this, it's actually kind of crazy because season three, um well, you you know they they Skype together to write the season three script, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's actually kind of a back to starting positions because if you can believe it, Mark Frost had his um it was, uh, oh God, it was like a really early edition of a Macintosh and somebody figured out like, you know, back when only Usenet and probably, uh, academics, uh, types were on the internet, they figured out how to pipe his Macintosh from Los Angeles over to where David Lynch was staying in New York. And, um, you know, like the, whatever Mark was typing on his screen was showing up over on David's, uh, uh, screen and you know like they're they're just talking on the phone talking about it, it it's crazy to mm. think that mm. like that was happening even back then yeah that is that is great yeah. just back to the the mm. real life uh story mm. uh real life murder that inspired twin peaks there is also a documentary i believe coming out called blonde beautiful and dead so that's also something to look out for. Yeah, and I think that is related to the the book that the book. Bushman yeah. and Givens were writing. Yeah, it's gonna be yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah, when um, that comes out, we will point you to it. We will definitely point you to that. But I love, yeah, as you said, that Frost and, and Lynch were figuring out uh novel ways of working together and collaborating, yeah. even in 88 89 was this at this point yeah this would have been late 88 so they they actually um the the script comes together way faster than they were expecting to they bring it back to the network and the network says we love this but we have no idea where this is going to be able to go so you guys tell us what um what's going to happen if it if it turns into a full season so they actually put all the details, um, well, you know, I mean, roughly of uh, what would probably happen in season one, except they put it in the shape of a Twin Peaks Gazette. So they actually hand ABC this little newspaper that has like all the plot details that they want. And um, that pretty much sealed the deal. It's like they, 
they I, I don't think ABC thought that it would go anywhere either, but you know, they thought it was interesting enough. You know, it's like, let's just gamble on it. I mean, what's the worst that could happen? We get something else that's really interesting. Ooh. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So they, they go, they go into the casting phase and um, it's all about having conversations with, um, with the, um, the actors as they come in. It's not about line mm-hmm. reading. And mm-hmm. um yeah, you know, it's like I, I just figured it was eccentric and everything, but um I I can't remember who said it, but it it sounds actually way more practical than you know just getting the vibe of somebody. And it's like they wanted to yeah. find people that they were not gonna have personality conflicts with. They wanted to find yeah. people that kind of embodied a certain energy for the roles, but they also mm-hmm. wanted to just be able to know that they're gonna be able to work with everybody. Yeah, and it seems to be the way Lynch casts everything. He goes mm. on usually a single picture and then just how he feels when he's <laughs> having a cup of coffee with them, which I think, yeah, I mean, it sounds very sort of woo-woo, but I think it's it's actually very sensible, like mm-hmm. you say, am I going to get on with these people? Yeah. But the wonderful Joanna Ray was was leading the casting, wasn't mm-hmm. she? Yes. Um, yeah, she brought all the people to him and you know, like famously kept giving him James Marshall. And <laughs> even though his yes. photo looked like it was from Teen Beat. <laughs> yeah. Oh, poor James. Oh, he'll I always, know. <laughs> he'll always be cool. Well, yeah. And David Lynch yeah. eventually figured it out too. <laughs> <laughs> some people, some people never figured it out. Yeah. But, um, oh, James. Yeah. So, um, tell us about how, do you know how they cast Laura, the role of Laura, because uh, Cheryl Lee was a complete unknown. I think she'd just mm-hmm. done some some uh, you know amateur dramatics at home. Yeah, well, she and Phoebe Augustin were um, were basically just extras, and um, mm-hmm. they they wanted to figure out um, you know like which was which was going to be the the, the girl and which was going to be the um, the the one on the bridge and. Uh, mm-hmm. Um, I think, um, <laughs> I can't remember if it was Phoebe or Cheryl who said it, but like, um, you know, they basically come up to a question of like, are you comfortable with nudity? And, um, and Phoebe basically says, oh, I'm not so sure. And Cheryl says, no, no problem. <laughs> and that's, that's how they got, which role they got. And it couldn't have hurt that she was blonde, which kind of, plays into this iconic you know archetypal blonde woman yeah with a tragic situation you know echoing a little bit of the the goddess script mm-hmm. that never came to pass yeah um and Shelley and Audrey do you know about how they were cast? yeah well um Shelley and Audrey were basically characters that like didn't exactly exist like Frost had an idea about Audrey but like he was figuring it would be like this small little role. And, um, he, he, um, I mean, you know, he basically everybody saw Cheryl and Fenn and they're like, Oh, okay. We can, (laughs) we can, we we can can run with with this this. all the way to the moon. (laughs) Uh huh. Yeah. Very, very wise. Yeah. And then, um, mention Emma came in. Probably likewise with Shelly. (laughs) mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I'm Mm -hmm. pretty confident of that because she came in to read for Donna's part. And, um, you know, like she, she gets like maybe a line into, I guess they did a little bit of reading. Um, 
Mm-hmm. just to kind of get an idea of like what kind of part they're looking at. And then he comes up like, he just interrupts and says, no Shelly. And then <laughs> you know, like totally explodes this like background character. Like, you know, they, they, they came up with like Shelly, the waitress and she was going to be like toad, the, the guy who like yeah. eats the food at the tables or something. Yeah, and um, just a background. Yeah. Too. Yeah. But you know, imagine Amag, she becomes a main character. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, Again, they, you'd be mad not to mm-hmm. have as much of her on screen as you possibly could. Yeah. Um, and then obviously you've got the actors that Lynch was already, you know, he famously <clears> loves <throat> to to work with the same people again and again. So Carl McLaughlin obviously was in yeah. Blue Velvet. And this is a sort of almost a continuation of that character in some mm-hmm. ways. Of this like apple pie, you know, gee whiz kind of energy. Yeah. Um. But also Joan Chen was brought in last minute. I believe. Yeah, yeah. That nobody, nobody that I can find data on. Like everybody's like, we don't know how Joan Chen really got involved in this. You know, mm-hmm. like, I, I think they. I mean, they they obviously saw her work and um, the. Um, oh my gosh, the Last Emperor. I can't remember which one. Yeah. Like really hit big over in America, but like she yeah, she was, was a known cool. actress at the time. But like how she like specifically got involved in Twin Peaks is like almost a mystery. But um, it was in it was in fast action. I mean, it, it was um, it was quick after Isabella Rossellini withdrew from the project because she had another movie that uh, needed to be filmed right around then, and. Um, you know, like nobody, you know, this, this is like a, like practically a vanity project, according to everybody, it was never going to see the light of day. So, you know, like, why not just pick mm. the movie? Yeah. Yeah. Hence, we're way working with largely yeah. unknowns or new <clears throat> actors, generally speaking. Yeah. But sad again that Rossellini wasn't mm-hmm. able to be part of the Twin Peaks universe. I know. She was going to be the love interest for Cooper, if you could believe it. Oh, I can't believe it. And I would buy a ticket for that. <laughs> Yeah, I think about the only remnant we're getting on that is um, when Cooper says, who's the babe in this episode? Um, Other than that, like they completely dropped the the romance, which I mean, I honestly think that that was probably one of the best parts about about this accident is that, you know, we can have our Cooper Harry. uh, I'm not romance, uh, bromance. (laughs) I mean, you never know. Maybe in another reboot. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, a reboot called uh, Green Butt Skunk. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I guess in the good way, it paved the way for the echo of Carl McLaughlin and Laura Dern having this romance in season three. Yeah. Which a lot of fans weren't that too happy with. But in, if you look at it with, you know, in terms of like how season three plays plays with a lot of Lynchian canon. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess it's, yeah, it's, it's good that Agent Cooper never really found his love. Mm-hmm. But I still do wonder, where's Annie, you know? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's, it's interesting how, how Lynch just decides, like, what parts he wants to bring into X or Y. And, <laughs> yeah, it's... I, I don't know. We'll we'll have a lot to say about all of that we'll as that. as we get In a little closer time. to season three. So let's look at location and filming. Yeah. Okay. So 
Yeah, that that was also kind of a happy accident because they were going through multiple days of scouting locations. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, like they they kept looking and couldn't find anything. And like they they it, it's the last day they're in the Snoqualmie and North Bend area. And like, you know, they're just driving yeah, around. And it's like, oh, there's the mill. Oh, 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 there's the there's the hotel. You know, there's this there's this. You know, it's like everything ah. was just like popping up and it's almost like here we are (laughs) just revealing Mm. themselves it's and that hotel on the waterfall i mean Mm -hmm. really yeah really stunning yeah exactly the mountains behind the diner it's all it's Mm -hmm. all there Mm, beautiful yeah yeah and the whole thing just sounds like magic like you know they um they they filmed in early 89 so like this actually came together pretty quickly um mm. so like in early 89 i wouldn't be surprised if it was february 24th when they actually started but i um you know i i my <laughs> my research could only pinpoint so far um but yeah early 1989 like everybody was talk everybody like who was part of it, the crew, the cast, like anybody just thought that it was like this amazing, like almost family level experience. Mm -hmm. Um, And they shot for six weeks and even got snowed in. So like, you would think that like, if it wasn't a great experience, like all everybody would remember is like, Oh, we couldn't even go into town. We got snowed in on this stupid project or whatever. (laughs) But like, nobody was like that. Like it it's cause Lynch and Frost decided to secure their own funding for it. Like instead of going with a regular studio because they Mm -hmm. wanted stuff like final cut, they wanted to be able to just, you know, do whatever they wanted and have, have the control over it that you can't right. get in Hollywood. So yeah, they went Lynch outside was not of Hollywood. Hand that over after Dune, so. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So they had to go to an international company to get the funding. But um, you know, they they really did just start doing things the way they wanted to. And um the way they started so the pilot- with, mm-hmm. sorry. No, that's okay. I was just gonna say, so was the pilot exclusively filmed in Snoqualmie. There was nothing filmed in yes. studios as well. It was That's all true. Well. Yeah, wow. all over six weeks. And they started it out with this um, with this big, giant feast for everybody. And it's like they wanted to have mm-hmm. like a communal meal where everybody was there. I mean, that that is cast and crew and like, you know, anybody involved, you know, publicity, I'm sure. You know, it's like everybody just got to hang out together, got to know each mm-hmm. other as people, and then they started working. I would have loved to be a fly on the wall for those few weeks. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And um, about the shooting itself, like I'm not going to go into a whole bunch because, I mean, we've already <laughs> we've already been talking about it for a while. But um, Sherilyn mm-hmm. Fenn had a great quote in, in Reflections. Um, she basically says, David is not weird in the way everyone wants to say he is. He's eccentric, kind, and he never yells on set. It's always relaxed, and it's very, very abstract. He's not there to tell everyone what to do. He describes it like there's a soundboard in front of him, and he turns up the volume, turns something else down, and then adds a little more bass. He hires the people he knows are essentially right for the role and makes little adjustments. And then Peggy Lipton, in a in a book, that was published in actually December of 90 uh, twin peaks behind the scenes by Mark Altman. Um, She says, when you're around David Lynch, it's like every nerve cell in your body tunes up your craft. So like, there's all this frequency talk already. And Mm. like, I'm not even in my theories. (laughs) Yes, indeed. 
the themes were there. Mm-hmm. It just seems like one of those, you know, moments in time where everything just aligns perfectly and yeah. the right people come to the project and it all. Yeah, you know, I know it wasn't all smooth sailing the whole way through, but certainly sounds yeah. like it got off to a pretty magical start, mm-hmm. which set the tone. Yeah, for the cast. Yeah, and the only thing they had to do to get all that is to have this contractually obligated material at the end. Because, mm-hmm. you know, they, basically, if the pilot wasn't going to get picked up by ABC, it was mm-hmm, going to mm-hmm. be turned into a movie over for the international markets. And right. um, it's basically um, David Lynch, like, put it, you know, it, <laughs> who knows if it's actually true or not, but he says he put his hand on a car, on a hot car, and it all came to him in a flash about the Red Room and everything. So um, th- what ended up, being the last you know 25 minutes of this this material that we'll never see is instead of seeing the gloved hand taking the necklace from the ground uh, that sarah palmer sees uh, she actually sees a vision of bob at the end of laura's bed which um, eventually leads into philip gerard calling the police to the hospital where there's a showdown with a very killable bob in the basement so, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> oh yeah, and then it's followed by the red scene, the red room scene that takes place uh, literally twenty five years later. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's all pretty much there, and it's going to get repurposed into episode two. But um, we're not going to talk about that now um, mm-hmm. because you know it fits in better there. But yeah, yeah I mean, like, absolutely. like for us, but said, it's great that the seeds were there. Yeah, yeah, because like, of what they had to do contractually, actually. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and like Trust said, just because it was contractually obligated doesn't mean it wasn't cool, and they were for sure going to actually find a way to include that. So the end result? Yeah, that that pretty much sums up everything uh, as far as, like, the filming itself. And, you know, they go through a marketing campaign to make sure that it um, gets shown enough places that ABC almost has to air it, and mm-hmm. they they decide to. So the end result is April 8th, 1990, uh, airing immediately following America's Funniest Home Videos, which was in its first season. (laughs) So, you know, it's like, you know, 20 minutes before before Twin Peaks starts, you got Bob Saget like um, saying, pushing a rock, pushing a rock, pushing a rock, pushing a rock, while a dog's (laughs) like literally pushing a rock. So, you know, it's like I I can't even imagine what the tone shift was because I didn't watch it. And um, really the only... Yeah, the only person in my house who did watch it was my mom. She she had to go upstairs because I think my dad, well, we only had cable on one TV because that's how it worked back then. And mm-hmm. um, I'm pretty sure that's how he saw the the White Sox beat up on the Brewers. But uh, yeah, wow. so, so my mom was watching it and uh, eventually recorded it over the summer. So that's how I got mm-hmm. into it. But um, she was hooked all the way and she actually watched all 30 episodes when they aired is hmm. awesome and what a cool mom yeah oh i, I know a few a few years later after 1990 it found its way to south africa and my mm. mom was a hill street blues fan oh. so she <laughs> uh so she watched a bit of it but it really freaked her out really freaked mm-hmm. her out so she um she always told me like there's something something not right about that show <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she's not wrong <laughs> I mean, you know, Catholic yeah. Catholic school mm-hmm. put the fear into you. Yeah. So, um, but I always found it interesting that she'd always said, just, just that particular show, there's something, <laughs> something not right about it. Yeah. Okay, mom. 
exactly. <laughs> I'm going to watch it when I'm mm-hmm. <laughs> able to get my hands on it. Yeah, it's like noted. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But that was only, that was later when I found my way to it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, thank goodness it all mm-hmm. came to be. Absolutely. And I know my mom wasn't the only one watching it because it turned out that it was a certified rating smash. And it had, at the end of the year, it was the highest ratings for any of the, any um, two-hour movie for the whole year. So it did well. Were they running the Who Killed Laura Palmer campaign before the pilot? Yeah, it was like, um, there there was a little bit of... um, I I don't know if they actually said who killed Laura Palmer then, mm. but they like the the campaign that I remember seeing a lot of commercials for is like it's a nice town, but you wouldn't want to die there or something right. something like that. So it was like really playing up the whole noir of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, yes, yeah. indeed. Yeah. Well, that's. That's pretty much how it got made and why it got made. And um, we're going to obviously talk about, you know, like what we think about the product itself. But um, before we do that, um, we want to get into the uh, David Lynch's final statement on the pilot, you know, just for his own particular uh, recontextualization, because Mm -hmm. he wrote the Log Lady intros um that would air in 1993 because it was uh, it was this nice little extra that they were doing when it uh, got syndicated to the bravo network which was a cable station um so yeah like back uh, back then everybody thought that twin peaks was just dead as a doornail and uh, mm-hmm. we would never see it again you know this was kind of it so lynch's words here with the log lady intros i mean that's as good that's as good a point of view as you were ever going to get from Lynch as far as like what he thought about the episodes and, or what he wanted us to think about as we watch the episodes. So yes, over to one of my favorite characters of all time within Twin Peaks, the wise Oracle, AKA the log lady. And the log lady intro for the pilot, which I'm going to grab my log for, mm-hmm. is uh, as follows. Welcome to Twin Peaks. My name is Margaret Lantman. I live in Twin Peaks. I am known as the log lady. There is a story behind that. There are many stories in Twin Peaks. Some of them are sad, some funny. Some of them are stories of madness of violence, some are ordinary. Yet they all have about them a sense of mystery, the mystery of life. Sometimes the mystery of death, the mystery of the woods, the woods surrounding Twin Peaks. To introduce this story, let me just say it encompasses the all. It is beyond the fire, though few would know what that means. It is a story of many, but begins with one, and I knew her. The one leading to the many is Laura Palmer. Laura is the one. So instead of being fridged and forgotten, as we move on to try and understand the town and its weirdness, Lynch remembers Laura. Mm -hmm. 
Unlike Frost, Peyton and Engels, who broke down stories and character development in a TV-compatible way, Lynch dove in with respect to the character and took that compassion to heart. Um, I think I see Twin Peaks as a very seismic turning point in Lynch as a artist and a director. Mm-hmm. I would argue his feminist-leaning interest in women as their own as the focus of a piece and also of trauma at the hands of misogyny, I think took root with Laura. Mm -hmm. And uh, he really fell in love with this character to the point where he couldn't let go of her when everyone else was ready to. Um, He wanted her to live. And that's how the direction of Fire Walk With Me was born. Um, When he went back in one more time, he went backwards rather than forwards. Something that we might see again in the return. Yeah, yeah. I kind of wonder. I like. I don't. Th- this isn't founded in anything other than like. I almost wonder if like Lynch recognizes this need in him to like go back and like make make Laura Palmer alive for us in that movie. Like if it's um, if it's at all like that instinct. Like if he could have done it in in the show like within mm-hmm. that reality like mm-hmm. would he have done it and like it it almost mm-hmm. makes me feel like that was like the beginning instinct for like you know what cooper did and the end of part 17 where he actually goes into firewalk with me and and you know rescues her or whatever <laughs> you know like what, whatever he whatever cooper thinks he's doing you know whether it's mm. like really happening or not you know it's like it, it's still true for cooper and yes. it just makes me wonder if like this instinct to um give laura palmer life like feeds into that eventually mm-hmm. absolutely yeah it seems to be a very meta reference to his own sense of wanting to not necessarily white knight her back into existence, but wanting to turn the clock back and wanting to put the focus on the victim, I think, in a mm-hmm. way that actually really had not been done before until this day yeah. still isn't done enough where yeah. we focus on, um, you know, a beautiful young victim, but we focus more on the perpetrator Mm-hmm. or sort of more sensational aspects of the victim's life rather than who they really were. Yeah. And um, I think it's rightly so. I think Lynch, Lynch's instincts to try and have Cheryl Lee in the show as much as possible was very smart. She's, um, I wish she'd been more active and more utilized as an actress post her work on Firewalk with me, because it's absolutely mm-hmm. incredible. And her work in the show is incredible as well. Absolutely. Um, but uh, yes, I think definitely season three, we see Lynch regretting that he can't go back in time and just make <laughs> her live. And I hope, and time will only tell that uh, maybe Carrie page is the key to continue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, yes, he sees her still with us when he sees Cheryl Lee. Mm-hmm. Obviously, uh, he uh, kind of like uh, the project that never came to pass, kind of plants her <laughs> consciousness in her cousin Maddie, yeah, just as a way of bringing her back. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, of course, the Red Room where we see her. 
Yeah, I think Lynch's love for the character of Laura Palmer um, was also something that great, gave him great sadness because he saw her as the Pandora's box of mystery mm-hmm. uh, that everything would stem from. As the log lady says, she is the one. Yeah. Um, but also she's such an interesting character because she's a just a complete contradiction innately. Mm-hmm. Uh, she has an innate duality. And uh, so instead of just being the cause of an investigation, she is a person. Mm-hmm. And long before she was dead, she lives. So um, this is something that we'll see throughout the whole of Twin Peaks, including Firewalk With Me. Yes. But I think as a woman, I really appreciate that she wasn't just a femme fatale mm-hmm. or an angel. You know, she yeah. was a transcendent, flawed human being of dark and light. Mm-hmm. And I really appreciate that we got to see more of her in Firewalk With Me. Yeah. Yeah, me um, too. Yeah, as a storyteller... Like, you can go back. I'm not trying to say, like, that, um, you know, I mean, I'm not saying that you're saying that I'm <laughs> saying it, but <laughs> just, you know, yeah. covering my bases that, like, you know, the the actual ability as a storyteller to go back and tell older stories or, or previous stories, like, that's totally within reason, you know, because, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's it's fiction at the end of the day, so... Yeah, and I actually is respectful to go back for for Lynch to do it. Yeah, and it it, you know I think that's that is part of the magic of Lynch is he has the audacity to not want to stick to the rules of (laughs) of fiction, but also just the rules of reality. He's like, no, 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 Mm -hmm. no. (laughs) It's not as simple as just this is there is one truth and there is one even. Uh, dimension you know mm-hmm. uh and i i think all credit to frost for his jungian approach and his interest in the esoteric and his interest in um also in social justice which i think yeah. can come out in in a sense of of you know for all of the darkness in twin peaks there is a sense of of um of light and mm-hmm. of people trying to do the right thing despite all of that um so the story encompasses the all so yes for frost um he saw it as a collective unconscious uh but for lynch he calls this thing the unified field and this is again something that's going to come up again and again throughout Mm -hmm. all of the the text yeah um yeah and like when you see lynch use words like the story encompasses the all again like there's just there's these little there's these little symbols that like he, he puts in to everything and um, it'll come out in these log lady intros. Like what, mm-hmm. you know, like what we're going to do is kind of, <laughs> it, it's, it's not exactly break the code, solve the crime, but you know, like we, I think we will try it's to like associate things like as far as like how they've been used in the future, mm-hmm. in the past, like you know, just in general. Yeah. It's almost like the log lady is a direct mouthpiece of, their thoughts on the on the text in a way mm-hmm. she's able to bridge the gap between the real world and the world of twin peaks and yeah almost directly tell us you know mm-hmm. what we're seeing um and the codes that will come up again the the sign the uh symbols that will come up again and again um including fire she says beyond the fire mm-hmm. though few would know that meaning 
Um, So what's the fire? Well, depending on when else she talks about it, there's this kind of fire is hard to put out. Mm. And um, like there, it seems like fire can be good and it can be bad. And um, um, remember Deputy Hawk says, depends on your intention on how you use it. Yep. In part, part 11, when uh, he and Mm. Frank Truman are looking at at the living map, there's, Mm. um, there's um, fire. And then there's also a symbol for black fire. And Mm. um, about, about the, um, about the fire, a hawk will say, um, the symbol's a type of fire, more like modern day electricity. And mm. then Frank says, good. Hawk says, it depends. It depends on the intention, the intention behind the fire. Mm. So like, to me, like the fire is basically like what electricity does, which is it mm. runs things, you know, it's like, it's, it's the flow of the energy. Mm-hmm. Or it's the mm-hmm. energy it's the that can of flow. Our world, in a way, yeah. Yeah, and but the then, tools. Yeah, but then when Margaret says here beyond the fire, so it's it's beyond the energy itself, and mm-hmm. I kind of associate it with like what's beyond it is how you use it, mm-hmm. and that really plays into so many things about Twin Peaks. Like you know, there's Absolutely. the darkness and the light, and yeah. um. The story Absolutely. seems like it's a big fight between the the Black Lodge and the White Lodge by the end of it. And, you know, it's like it doesn't matter how, mm-hmm. like, plot specific or how metaphorical mm-hmm. it all is. It, it just always, I think it really is about, you know, how how the electricity flows through real people and the metaphysical. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. And definitely something I think that comes up in season three in part eight when we see the ultimate mm-hmm. form of dark usage of fire um in a atomic bomb yeah um yes and also obviously we get the kind of literal fire Mm -hmm. at the end of season one um sorry end of season two which they were hoping was gonna if you know there'd be enough cliffhangers Mm -hmm. (laughs) that they would get a get a third season yeah they were trying that that Throw in the kitchen sink again. <laughs> yeah. But it kind of makes sense. If you've got a sawmill, you've got the woods, mm-hmm. you've got Margaret Landsman talking about fire, you know, cause it sort of fits, doesn't it, that mm-hmm. a fire would happen at some point, some destruction. Yeah. Of of the natural order of things. Um, yeah, so she's, the story is beyond these things. The force of doing these things, the flow of energy, as you said, is just the flow of energy and it's the intention behind it. Um, but she also says Laura is the one which we have mm-hmm. um, picked up before. So as we said, all stories come from her. She is our entry point. She is the spark. Mm-hmm. Um, and mirrored in part 10 when Log Lady calls hawk some of the most heartbreaking and beautiful scenes i think i've ever seen are the the telephone calls that she has between uh you know her dying days and and deputy hawk um yeah so in in part 10 this is what she says to hawk at the end of of the episode right before rebecca mm -hmm. del rio sings no stars she Mm -hmm. says hawk electricity is humming 
You hear it in the mountains and the rivers. You see it dance among the seas and stars and glowing around the moon. But in these days, the glow is dying. What will be in the darkness that remains? The Truman brothers are both true men. They are your brothers. And the others, the good ones who have been with you. Now the circle is almost complete. Watch and listen to the dream of a time and space. It all comes out now, flowing like a river. That which is and is not. Hawk, Laura is the one. Yeah, so, um, Pamela Terazak over at the Twin Peaks Between Two Worlds Facebook group, she made mm -hmm. a point of, oh man, a couple of years ago at this point, probably, um, where um, that which is and is not comes right before Laura is the one. So mm -hmm. like in this in this pilot, uh, the way it's used is like she's the beginning of everything. She's the she's where, you know, she's the kind of like the explosion where all the stories come from almost. Mm -hmm. But in mm -hmm. this case, it's almost like a signifier of there is and Laura is where it's almost implying that the one that is not could be like Carrie Page or Lodge mm. Laura. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I just like that, that really linked up with what I was thinking at the time. And um, I kind of feel almost like there's a reality as well that is and is not, and that Laura mm -hmm. signifies the one that is. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I just, I just find it interesting. Like anytime Lynch says Laura is the one, you know, it's like, is she, like you know, you could you could almost say that like that that golden orb in part eight actually is the birth of Laura, <laughs> but like we we obviously have a lot to unpack with that. But like this is going to be one yes. of those um, ongoing. Yeah, like th this is definitely going to be a preoccupation, like between <laughs> between the two of us looking forward, like with every episode. So having said that, let's move on to specific scenes that we want to highlight um, that will have more tendrils of stories to come out of it. What's up, gang? This is Hoptimus. You've been listening to one of the great new podcasts from Ruminations Radio Network. If you want some more tasty sound vibes, come check out my new podcast, The Retro Futurist Culture, where we talk about alternate timelines, cyberpunk, anime, and other crazy worlds. If that does not strike your fancy, we have plenty of other great shows at RuminationsRadioNetwork.com. So we've looked at the importance of Laura. And we've looked at how David Lynch tends to think of her, but we haven't really looked at what kind of presence we actually see Laura as in the original series. And um, now that we're entering our scene analysis, it seems like a good place to start, doesn't it? Absolutely. So yes, Laura is our protagonist, but an interesting kind of protagonist and one that I think has been echoed throughout a lot of television um, to the point of potentially becoming a bit of a problematic trope of the beautiful, blonde, usually successful or, or high-profile but troubled mm -hmm. 
female who is um, fridged from the start um, and is um, a murder that needs solving. So there is that element. Um, when we see the pilot, we see, firstly, when we see her, we see her body iconically wrapped in plastic, um, almost like a Barbie doll that's in packaging that's being unveiled, but also as some have pointed out online, her face is blue and the plastic is like petals framing her face. Mm -hmm. um, we also see her photograph. Um, again, iconically the one that's used, her homecoming queen photograph that's used in the end credits. And uh, we hear her name mentioned, obviously. Um, Sarah calling out her name, which is echoed again throughout the series. And we'll hear that obviously in the return um, in some kind of time warp. Um, we also see her absence as almost a presence. So we see eerily empty spaces that follow in her wake and follow conversations about her. The suddenly deathly silent sawmill when Josie decides to shut it. The desolate roads of like a February in uh, the North West Pacific. The single point perspective hallways of the, the school and the morgue. And we also see her presence and absence in her relationships with those in Twin Peaks who knew her, loved her, had trouble with her, had, you know, various different types of relationships with her and then learn of her death and mourn her. Um, is there anything you want to add on that point, John? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, it, it's impossible to not remember what the Diane podcast talks about it if you've listened to their show at all um it's a it's a regular kind of theme over there <laughs> and I mean it's 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 so obvious once you hear it but they they like to call it an absent presence that Laura is mm -hmm. um you know like Rosie she'll say um she's an absent character who is not absence and will fight her way to presence and um you know, they'll, they'll say like how she's revealed in every photo, every videotape, audio tape, uh, conversation with Jacoby, like everything. And it's like she's revealing herself as a presence. And um, uh, Mark, their, their host, he basically said, when the investigation is over, Laura will finally be given her life back, but also her death. And I think that's pretty... Um, it's pretty telling um, about just why we, like, why we as a culture back in 1990 just got obsessed with, like, who this person is. Because, yeah, I mean, back in the day, um, a, a typical case would be solved in a single episode. You'd get, you'd, you know, you'd see the, the case of the week at the very beginning, and then the protagonist would show up, like, immediately and solve it. But like mm -hmm. straight from yeah. the get go, it's it's like a full half an hour before Dale Cooper even arrives. So like mm -hmm. we're this this presence of Laura really is just like it it's kind of embodying and haunting the show almost like a ghost. Mm hmm. Absolutely. It also then plays in as the sort of mythology starts building mm -hmm. of. Uh, of a kind of duality of she she lives and yet she's dead. Yeah. Um, she is Laura, but she isn't Laura. Is she actually Maddie? Is she Carrie? Is she mm -hmm. none of these people? Um, is she just a symbol? 
is she just a yeah a hollow mm -hmm. figure is she everything um so it's it's yeah it's kind of there from the start with like you say this this stretched out um period of time that we see twin peaks and we see this absence playing out with such a presence mm -hmm. and um yes and definitely there are problems i think obviously when we look back at it from a 2021 perspective um but i do think as the series plays out some of those problems are if not directly addressed they are developed and uh, there's more nuance added as we go along yeah. and i'm just so glad that that linton frost recognized cheryl lee's talent because mm -hmm. i i just i'm so astounded at her talent and i wish she'd you know had more work as an actress because it's really just stunning stuff and she is the perfect laura she yeah. really is oh absolutely um, so we also see her presence and absence in the community of twin peaks who don't need to be told that she's died they sort of sense it in some way Mm -hmm. And um, this is from even like the first scene with Josie where she's putting on her makeup in this kind of reverie of million miles away mind and singing this tune um, where it almost seems to be that she's knowing something before she knows it mm -hmm. and she's sensing something that she doesn't quite know. Um, obviously, this is like most overtly shown with Sarah, who's shown to have this kind of psychic ability in some way um, and her level of anxiety when she you know casually goes to check on Nora but you can see pretty you know quite obviously that she she knows something's up and before even the words have come out on the phone that you know Laura's been found dead she she's breaking down in tears um, who else doesn't need to be told <laughs> about Laura's death. Yeah, well, the first person who actually sees Laura and doesn't really um, use her name is Pete. And um, that that's kind of an interesting choice because, like, he doesn't actually know it's Laura, but, like, she's dead, you know, like, stuff like that. Like, he, um, it's like his nomenclature sticks even even after the fact but it's kind of i don't know it's it it's interesting that they picked pete to do it too because um jack nance was in Eraserhead. i mean he's he's a he's a friend of lynch since forever and he was in every single lynch production he was able to be in up until his death in um, the late 90s and um he kind of it he um that that way that he and Lynch like didn't have to talk like they just kind of knew how to be on the same wavelength mm -hmm. it's like he started yeah. out presenting with that yeah and we I think yeah Pete's friendship with Josie and and Audrey mm -hmm. um it, it kind of fits almost that maybe he had that kind of friendship with Laura as well that she was someone that he was in some yeah. way close to um but we never get shown this um, but yes. this sense of like the sort of supernatural bubbling under the surface, I mean, it's it's so well done because you don't see any 
red room. You don't see any mm-hmm. lodge spirits. You don't see anything in that pilot. There's just this ominous sense of something being just ever so slightly uncanny. Mm-hmm. Um, and that obviously will just continue to play out and play out and play out and echo out. Um, and then, yes, so there's an echo of when the giant announces Maddie's death without actually announcing it mm-hmm. um, in the devastating episode when we see Maddie's death and we see everyone in the roadhouse in tears and crying and, and knowing somehow that this awful thing has happened again. Yeah. Um, why, but back to Pete, so why do you think Pete was the one chosen to find Laura? Is it just because of this, like, relationship with Lynch, or...? I, I would think so, more than anything, because, like, the, the inflection that he puts into the words, and, like, the the understanding of, like, what kind of gravity this needs to be. Like, he mm. just, he puts it out there immediately with, I mean, you know, everybody... It, it's iconic, you know, she's dead, wrapped in plastic, you know, like, he, he just, mm. he gets... Yeah, delivery is great. Yeah, he gets the idea of, like, how to present it to be, like, weirdly mysterious and strange and um, haunting. Mm-hmm. And yet kind of comforting and homely because yeah. it's wrapped in this sweet man who's just going fishing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um Pete and fish, there's something in that. Hey, mm-hmm. he always catches the big fish. Um, <laughs> we also have the first time that we see the screaming courtyard girl, which we obviously then see again in the return, mm-hmm. which is, I think, one of the most effective parts of the pilot because it just makes sense. Like you could logically explain maybe she found out before everyone else in the school found out. It hasn't been announced. So that's a bit problematic, but maybe she did. That's possibly yeah. possibly she did. Yeah, the um the, the school secretary told the principal it's like there's rumors all over the school. So I mean I, I'm assuming that the courtyard girl kinda caught wind of that. But, but then yeah. at the same time had the timing of seeing her just before Donna seems to realise as well mm-hmm. is uh and also, there's, you know, someone doesn't usually, like, scream out into the, the yard like that. Yeah. You know, not quite. It's not like the normal way people in the Western world respond to the, the news of terrible news. So yeah. there is something that's just ever so slightly, again, just enough to be unsettling to a viewer that's seeing it for the first time. Yeah. And Lynch has a thing with screams anyway. It's, it, it, um, it hasn't become a code here. It's more of, like, a punctuation of, like... You know, it's like the second that the police officer is telling the teacher um, what what the problem is, probably that Laura had died, um, that's when we get the explosion of a scream. And um, there's this code that, it's especially in season three, it's like obvious. I mean, the fact that he brings the courtyard girl back in the very first um, opening sequence, um, it, yeah, it starts with the scream and ends with the scream. The, the well, yeah, that's true. But it seems like everything, like Janie E's screaming when Dougie puts the puts the fork in the socket, uh, Lucy screaming when Frank Truman shows up. Yeah, it's like it's all over the return. That um, yeah. it's the the person who screams. There's something wrong, but they don't quite understand, or. If it's like um, 
the screaming Laura in the red room, it's like there's something wrong and she's making sure that Dale Cooper knows that he doesn't understand. Mm-hmm. And I think in this case, um, the the scream happened because like we as an audience almost didn't understand or we did. And like we're seeing like all these people that know something's wrong and they're not quite there yet. Mm, yeah. But that's what unlocks Donna. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, Donna is a big one in terms of like, you can just see that she's realized when she looks into Laura's absence in school mm-hmm. and the empty chair she knows, which again, we will see more of their relationship and how Donna might have intuited that something terrible would have happened to Laura when we see Fire Walk With Me. Yeah. Um, and James as well seems to also just know something's not right. Yeah. Um, again, something we'll see more developed in Fire Walk With Me. Mm-hmm. Um, but an interesting one is Audrey, when she's told, doesn't really yeah. have much of an emotional reaction. Yeah, she, it's, it's almost like, you know, like she's got the gears going on in her head and she's like, well, that tracks. Yeah. Or she's just a little bit of a psychopath. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, Which in the pilot, that's definitely kind of what they were shooting for, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, and obviously Audrey's, Audrey's character is a is a very strange, strange one in the way it's developed, mm-hmm. let's say, uh, even though I have a soft spot for her. Yeah. Um, Bobby needs to be told quite firmly. In fact, he's in denial about it. Yeah. Um which probably tracks in terms of he's not really that plugged into Laura. He's not really that interested mm-hmm. in Laura at that p- that point. He's, you know, chasing Shelley in the diner. Yeah. Um, but yes, definitely the strongest reaction we see is from the incredible performance by Grace Zabriskie, who I, I mm-hmm. just, woo, I yeah. love that woman. Absolutely. And I'm so glad that she worked again with Lynch in, uh, in uh, Wild at Heart and uh, Inland Empire. Mm-hmm. Um, but we see her reaction uh, in the Palmer House, which the Palmer House becomes almost like a lodge space within the town. It's such a such a kind of portal of darkness that we see, and with that weirdly unnerving shot that we see of her going upstairs with the ceiling fan, and we mm-hmm. see the ceiling fan turning, and. Yeah. Um, credit to Lynch I think in understanding trauma and how someone might focus on something so small in a room when being assaulted and that might be almost the thing that they remember more than the assault this kind of disassociation of why we're focusing on the ceiling fan um which we see again and again and this sort of this maybe symbol of like this turning recurring terrible cycle Mm -hmm. um if you wanted to get really deep on it um, but what is going on in the Palmer House? This is the question. And we were yeah. introduced to the Palmer House with this ominous feeling from the get-go. Mm-hmm. And uh, as the pilot goes on, we see this with the when Sarah is talking to Harry and Hawk and uh, Agent Cooper. And she gets very disturbed she hears footsteps upstairs and she says who's upstairs as though she is sensing that the perpetrator is there and obviously the reply is this wonderful 
little seed that's planted, whereas, oh, it's just Leland, it's just your husband. Mm -hmm. So, again, this, this psychicness, this ability for her to sort of know things on some level is introduced. Yeah. Um, which we then, yeah, potentially, we don't get this confirmed in season three, but the, the young girl in uh, episode eight mm -hmm. certainly seems to fit quite well, that there's yeah. some sort of darkness that's also entered Sarah, but it's, it's somehow also connecting her in a psychic way, she seems to understand. Um, so if we compare and contrast with part 12, the scene between Hawk and Sarah. Yeah, that. There are some, yeah, interesting. Yeah, it's, there. um, it's strange because it's, it's like almost exactly reversed because here she'll say who's upstairs and, um, you know, Harry says, um, your husband's upstairs with one of my men and it's Hawk. And in part 12, we see this, this reflection of it where angry Sarah, um, has something going on in the kitchen and Hawk asks her in like multiple ways, basically like, do you need help? Will you accept my help? And, you know, she just says it's a goddamn bad story. And like, she, um, she basically, refuses to give him that simple um that simple information like you know who's upstairs it's it's you with my husband you know just um it's like she shuts it down whereas in mm -hmm. in this case like she wants to kind of be there but then they're giving her they're giving her this drug, you know, it's like in, in part 12, she's doing the Bloody mm. Marys and everything, but you know, like we see the shot in the arm of like whatever I, morphine or whatever it is that is supposed to calm her down medically. Mm -hmm. And obviously her drinking Bloody Marys also plays into something that we can mm -hmm. talk about later on of the mother, yeah. the mother figure inverted in a sort of, you know, yeah. unholy way. But you know, like whether she's so, whether she's super angry at Hawk or whether she's here, like experiencing grief for the first major wave, um, she has to be kind of drowned in something to, you know, some mm. something to cloud what she's actually experiencing. Yeah, that's the substance abuse mm -hmm. uh, issue all the way through, and it's always in a sort of socially <clears throat> acceptable way. You know, Laura was dealing with her trauma via substances that were, yeah. you know, it's not acceptable. But um, Sarah's substance abuse is always in a way that's kind of normalized. So it's, oh, yeah. you know, it's the kind mm -hmm. town doctor giving her some, some, uh, yeah. God knows what. <laughs> or it's, you know, Bloody Marys that you can get bought in a you know, shop. So, um, yeah, definitely an interesting one yeah. with, with Sarah, who becomes probably one of the most important characters we see returning mm -hmm. in season three. Um, and along with this sense of the supernatural, the psychic that we're seeing through Sarah, do you think there are signs in this, this early stage in the pilot of other timelines and frequencies? I would say so. And we have to look into this because of the way, because of the way season three ended and the way Final Dossier kind of has this alternate history, um, you have to consider from the very beginning, like, are there seeds that, and, and obviously at the time, multiple timelines was not intended at all. 
Um, but, you know, Lynch and Frost, when creating season three, they, they sort of, like, it, it's not retconning per se, but they, they, mm-hmm. they leave all these dangling threads to be picked up later in some way or another. It's kind of like how um, Judy was in Fire Walk with me originally, um, most likely to become Josie's sister. But obviously that didn't happen in in the final official stuff. And, you know, that that's kind of what, what I'm looking at here when I'm looking for other timelines and frequencies. It's basically like, there's this weirdness in Twin Peaks, but is it coded to be, like, Lodge Space creeping in officially? And, you know, like, is this, is this an element that they eventually use to show things like multiple timelines or whatever you want to say was happening in season three. And I think you can Mm. actually see things because I mean, it's, there's a very, there's a very noticeable level of like magical realism in the original Twin Peaks. And I think you could, you could attribute Mm -hmm. that magical realism into evolving into the idea of the, multiple timelines or frequencies and i think you you just see it you just see it all over the place like with Mm. um you know drug use in general and i'm i'm crediting um oh my gosh (laughs) i'm crediting sarah's uh shot in the arm as a drug use because what that's doing is it's kind of masking over what she's actually experiencing in the real world so she's she's like having this filtered delusion mm. essentially uh imposed on her mm. and you can see that with all sorts of things yep. you know even um um oh my gosh you know like in in um in the fire walk with me scene where they're talking about the muffin the great wench you know um the homecoming queen even kind of becomes a nickname um mm. like mm. There, there's um there's ways of kind of like talking about alternate views that are sort of on a negative frequency and that's that's how i tend to see Mm -hmm. it i don't see multiple timelines per se but i i see like there's a positive frequency and there's a negative frequency and then there's the physical reality that it kind of all imposes on and like we we sort of get Mm -hmm. to see it here and there and um you know um in this case uh we see we see uh, Bobby and Mike going over to the Hayward's house to get Donna. And, you know, they've been drinking, which mm-hmm. we've already talked about kind of fits into this. And, um, you know, we see <laughs> we see Bobby on the hood of a car surfing. You know, obviously he's in a, a little bit of a different frequency from regular life. Um, yeah. And um, we see it a lot with him in particular and Mike, mm-hmm. really, with the... Um, yeah, the the barking in the jail Toxic cell, right? Toxic masculinity, if ever I've seen it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, but there's that weird sound design yeah. to it too, like where there's like multiple bobbies going raw. Mm. You know, <laughs> it's it like they fade in and they come over and yeah. Um, and this close up mm-hmm. of the mouth that he that Lynch does, impl- you know, he employs that over and over again as this like primal sort of dark side of of a human's yeah. reaction um negative mm-hmm. side let's say um 
Yeah, that is an interesting one. And um, if it wasn't for Bobby's beautiful curtains, I just don't know. <laughs> <laughs> he gets away with so much with that yeah. incredible, incredible haircut. Um, ahead of his time. Ahead of his time. Absolutely. Trailblazer. So, obviously, in the title, Twin Peaks, we have mm-hmm. this interest this idea that's been put into the actual fabric of the show from the very get-go of duality twins shadows echoes and mirrors and the first scene we see is of a lady looking into the mirror which is Josie Mm -hmm. observing her reflection and um obviously the mirror is a very interesting symbol um, a Jungian symbol um, or archetype or just a, a symbolism that's been used in art many times in terms yeah. of consciousness um, and also looking at one's shadow and reflecting on maybe the things we don't want to see or the things we do want to see. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, the, you know, Alice in Wonderland through the looking glass, it introduces an idea of another world, a mirror mm-hmm. reflection parallel universe something a place that we can't quite get to but we can potentially sense or see yeah um Josie's in a bit of a dreamlike state in that first scene it took me a while Mm -hmm. to kind of analyze the first scene because it's not an obvious choice in some ways Josie's maybe not a character that you'd think of as like the first character we see for Twin Peaks yeah um I think possibly to be fair they probably picked her because that face is just so beautiful that of course you would want to see that face as the first thing you see. Um, But she's painting on uh, makeup, almost like painting a mask Mm -hmm. onto her face. Absolutely. Um, But it's an interesting one, again, from a 2021 perspective to see her as the first thing. If we're looking at it from in terms of the male gaze in cinema and TV and the female gaze, And uh, unfortunately, with the character of Josie, we see her really throughout the season and just from a male gaze perspective as a beautiful, exotic, um, you know, and I put that in quotes, uh, lady who um, has a troubled past and, you know, troubled and needs a saviour in the form of Harry. But at the very least, in this first scene, we see her viewing herself and her gazing Mm -hmm. Um, and so choosing that's... to hide herself too, in a way, like she's she's painting, she's painting her eyebrows basically. Like, you know, it's like she's painting the face she wants to see over the mm-hmm. face that she sees. Yes. So there's a sense of someone concealing who they are, mm-hmm. which is something that comes up in this character. Yeah. Um, but I think an unten- unintended part of Twin Peaks, unfortunately, is a dualism even in the feminist side of it which you can read mm-hmm. and also the misogynist side which you can clearly see as well and there is these these kind of like competing uh, elements to the season which I you know I think I fall much more kindly in the way I view it because I do think that we need to see art in terms of when it was made and I think mm-hmm. if you actually see this piece compared to everything else that was being made it, you know, there's just no comparison. It was so ahead of its time. And yes, the cast is not as diverse as we would want to see, especially yeah. in season three. I think there's a lot more critique that we yeah. could go into there, which I think is fair. But I think mm-hmm. if we're looking at the 1990, you know, this was made in 89, in fact, 
um, it's actually a pretty diverse cast and also the focus on women, women's abuse, I think, that mm -hmm. had never been seen on TV. Not really ever seen properly, I think, in a way that looked at the woman's perspective of, of yes, abuse of women and uh, female trauma. But uh, talking of female trauma, we have uh, Sarah in the final scene mm -hmm. and uh, back to her psychicness and her ability to to see things that maybe people can't see. Sarah is often seen underneath a mirror with a mirror behind her, mm -hmm. um, which is an interesting thing because as much as she's a character that can see, it's behind. It's usually behind her. We see that again in season three that she sits with the mirror behind her. So it's the ability to see that she has, but the decision and choices she's made not to see certain things and um, yeah. turning away and dissociating from actually the things that she knows are going on potentially. Um, yes, and that's definitely a theme in the yeah. Palmer House in general. Yeah, yeah, and it 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 almost like you saying like the, the the mirrors are like just showing something that she can't see or something and it's almost it reminds me of um in that who's upstairs scene um the palmers were both kind of out of sync like vocally too there was that um um she talked about how the phone rang once and harry asked um when and you know like she can't hear him she hears uh, i mean she just says i don't know who it was and um you know hawk uh, leland all says something a little bit off center too where like and in, instead of talking about um the diary or anything you know, he he basically asks him do you have to take that or um do you have a key to this is what hawk asks him and he says do you have to take that yeah you know, it's like th there's just something just off from what's actually happening yeah yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so it's a theme that we'll see again in Firewalk with me as well. Yeah. Refusing to, to see and also not responding to what has been said, this kind of this uncanny again, disassociation of of uh, disconnection between them all um, in a just slightly again, just ever so slightly off way, sometimes very mm -hmm. obviously as well. And sometimes happy accidents get to figure in too with um absolutely the the reveal of bob it's a it's a thing you know? <laughs> um frank silva was in the room but like he was reflected in a mirror reflected in a mirror and then reflected in the mirror that's like right above sarah's head so like bob's right there the whole time just like kind of haunting the scene too almost like laura mm -hmm. but absolutely but the red room has a way of haunting absolutely and I think, um, yeah, something that is worth mentioning in this early stage is that um, the way I'll personally be reading Twin Peaks throughout or mm -hmm. attempting to is through from a, a Jungian perspective. Um, and there was just something I wanted to share from a Redditor who put it perfectly and his name's Jay-Z Communicate. Um, so I will quote him here and he says, Lynch talks about transcendental meditation and its influence on his work. He meditates and relies heavily on his unconscious and intuition for direction, often utilizing ideas and imagery that come to him in moments of inspiration, regardless of meaning and intention. Often he says he may not consciously understand how these ideas make sense in the narrative, 
but that he believes they are a part of a unified plane in which all ideas correspond, even if on an unconscious level. This is similar to Jung's theory of the collective unconscious, a part of our psyche that dates back to primordial psychic contents um, that are shared from all. From his collective unconscious, or from this collective unconscious, we inherit the archetypes, clusters of unconscious contents that guide all of our actions. We're influenced by these archetypes and by, by the level to which we develop them and the growth of our individual senses of self. You may have heard of archetypes such as the hero, the mother, the anima, animus, and of course, the shadow. These represent aspects of ourself. For instance, the hero represents the part of us that develops our capabilities to rise up and face challenges. The mother is the part of us that seeks to nurture, and the shadow is the part of all of our psyches we choose to shun or repress that we project onto others as evil or horrible traits. When we dream of our shadows, we may dream of terrible figures who cause harm and torment us, chase us, abuse us. These are Bob-like figures or can appear to our, us as evil doppelgangers. I'll quote him again when we start talking about season three, when he talks about Cooper's quest, because I very much enjoy how he, he sums this up. But um, I think you can clearly see both Lynch and Frost's interest in the esoteric mm -hmm. and um, this Jungian idea of the collective unconscious. Twin Peaks is, is to me an archetype of the collective unconscious because mm -hmm. they all seem to know and experience things very connectedly and, um, and there's always these echoes and shadows that seem to play out throughout the town in a way that's, you know, slightly unusual, but... Yeah. Yeah, it's great to see that even just in this pilot, you know, the amount of times we've revisited watching this, people fans of the show, and um, you can see, yeah, through Laura's death becoming something that mm -hmm. is seemingly felt and known without it being spoken about is um, the clearest indication that we're looking at that something that is a Jungian idea of the collective unconscious. Nice. Um, but yes, also I think the idea of the shadow is something that we'll see again played out again and again throughout the series. So yeah. um, maybe just little inklings of this in um, in mirrors, but we're going to be paying close attention to every time we see mirrors throughout Absolutely. the series. And Hey kids, it's Don Shanahan from the Cinephile Hissy Fit, one of the podcasts on the Ruminations Radio Network. If you've been enjoying this show, come listen to Will Johnson and I fight it out over cinema's best and worst on Cinephile Hissy Fit. Find us and all the great shows over on RuminationsRadioNetwork.com. Now that we're back from break, from our host at the Ruminations Radio Network, other fine podcasts in our family. Uh, we are back and we are here to ask the question, is Dale already in the Red Room? Because, I mean, obviously at this point in 1990, we would have no idea to even ask that question, but since season three is reframing everything, has uh, Lynch and Frost reframed it so that Twin Peaks is essentially like some sort of dream state, or if Dale Cooper's always been kind of in there. Um, you know, sometimes you hear like at the end of part seven, um, 
you know, when Cooper got shot, when, you know, has that been a dream? Like, you know, the, it, it's worth asking, like, from the get-go, especially since he's introduced with Dance of the Dream Man as his uh, theme background. Yeah. I mean, a Agent Cooper's our... our guide into the Red Room and the Dream State. Um, he's like the sort of shaman that leads us into this other realm through his dreams. So there's that, you know, coming up in the subsequent episodes, we'll see this new layer of reality that is on top of Twin Peaks. But you can't not ask the question, has the return changed everything entirely? Because as... Uh, uh, Philip Gerard says, I think the future dictates the past. So, you know, what has mm -hmm. come later in Twin Peaks has kind of reframed everything that we see in the original. Mm -hmm. um, you know, to the point where we saw actual scenes, you know, Pete never got to go fishing and <laughs> we saw actual scenes yeah. erased or changed, um, altered or reframed in a different way. And mm -hmm. it's, uh, I think, something that people struggle with. The, yeah. the fans of the original series, they feel like they don't want to look at it in a different way. They just want to enjoy the gentle rolling, you know, mm -hmm. relatively more gentle version of yeah. the original without without that next chapter changing everything. Mm -hmm. um, but it but it does, I think. I mean, it kind of, I think it's unavoidable. Like you sort of end up in this Mobius strip of maybe just an eternal return of things coming looping around <laughs> with agent cooper yeah. our um tragic hero mm -hmm. yeah i mean personally i sat on the side that there is a reality in twin peaks and um cooper is firmly in that right now but um yeah obviously we'll be looking into that um but yeah as of right now um you know before before the uh d the secret diary came out you kind of almost wonder if Laura created all this Lodge stuff from her, you know, like, was it a masking mechanism for, uh, you know, coping with PTSD involved in everything that happened to her? Um, there's all sorts of questions about that. But then after the diary, you mm -hmm. find out Bob's been here a while. Um, after My Life, My Tapes, you find out that um, Dale got his um, his gold pinky ring that he gave to the giant. He got that. Um, in his, um, I, I think it was his early, uh, early teens or twenties, um, from his mom in a dream and his mom happened to be dead at that time. So, I mean, you know, it's like, there's all these connections like from a while ago, um, you know, within the universe. I mean, the Blue Rose Task Force existed before Philip Jeffries disappeared. We find out in Fire Walk With Me and in Secret History, um, which I would consider <laughs> absolute canon because it came from Mark Frost and he and Lynch wrote the script together. Therefore they, yeah. you know, they, they know what they were trying to say um, together with, with the new stuff. So I count secret history and the owl ring shows up as early as before, um, as before the um, uh, Lewis and Clark expedition. So, the Lodge kind of has always been around in some capacity, and um, mm -hmm. it's been interacting with the area of Twin Peaks since forever. So 
in yeah. theory, I could kind of see how people would consider it a, an ability to be all, you know, a dream, even with a reality standpoint. But, you know, I, I still can't buy that based on all the other characters that we see in this show. Um, yeah, and yeah. I think that the beauty of Twin Peaks and a lot of other work by Lynch is this constant competing narrative you know these parallel realities that rub up against each other and you're never quite sure is it that or this you know and mm -hmm. it's both a lot of the time and that's part of why we're sat here today just you know you can dive into it from so many different angles and view it from so many different angles that you'll never fully be able to encapsulate the one way it is um so I think the answer probably is that yes he is already in the red room and no He's not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's this weird internal and external way of looking at things, too. Like, you know, from a metaphor standpoint, yes. it totally works. Absolutely. Yeah. Is the Red Room just a metaphor for the dream space? Or, yeah, a metaphor for duality in our world? Or, you know, is mm -hmm. it... Is it quite a direct representation of spiritual beliefs held by uh, Frost and Lynch that there is a, a spirit realm and there is, you know, another occult unseen layer to our reality? So I think, again, it's there's so many different ways of reading the Red Room. It's it's uh, it's one of the most enduring parts of the series I think you know otherwise mm. you would just end up with a, a kind of kooky whodunit <laughs> yeah um, with like lots of surrealism and it'd be great you know it'd be wonderful mm -hmm. but this other layer that adds on top of it um is like this never-ending evolving mythology and I think that's also you know part of what we will be exploring is how the mythologies evolved over the time and mm -hmm. um some of it's just, you know, really beautifully synchronistic and it just fits. Um, but I don't know if it was always intended. So there's that as well, you know. Yeah. What we're reading into it from a 2021 standpoint after season three is, is um, you know, there's multiple layers that have been added on top of the original text that uh, just complicate things further making yeah. it more fun <laughs> as a result yeah and yet honestly a lot of things are still there i mean you you just got done talking about a Jungian perspective and um you know it's like we all we see a bunch of lynch's preoccupations right here too like um i know you wanted to talk about the log lady like just introducing like the electricity concept yeah i mean the log lady is another sort of shamanic figure, isn't she? She's someone mm -hmm. that's holding space between two realms. She's the, not so much a dweller on the threshold, but maybe just a, you know, a, a, a point between the seeable 3D reality, if mm -hmm. you like, of, of just Twin Peaks, the town, and then this unknowable, unseeable, you know, we actually do get to see it, but, you know, underground kind of extra sensory experience of the place and as the place of a, as a sort of portal to to the underworld mm -hmm. 
Um, and then this, yeah, this theme of electricity, which I know has come up, come up a lot in your writing mm-hmm. about it, about the original series and um, this kind of, this metaphor has been brought up by, by a lot of people that have theorised around it, you know, the infamous <clears throat> nearly five hour um, <laughs> Twin Peaks explained video by Twin Perfect where he extended that metaphor of, you know, electricity being really, really key in how he believes Lynch and Frost mapped everything out and coded everything. Um, I'm not sure I can see them sitting down this at this stage, mapping out this code. But but at the same time, there are codes in there, and mm-hmm. electricity is one of them as this life force and yeah. this uh, you know electricity is the thing that's powering our brain and powering mm-hmm. our dreams, powering our consciousness. Yeah. Um, and then the log lady literally flicking the switch on and off, on and off. And really, that was her only job in the pilot. Yeah. Yeah. And she is arguably the first instance of the uncanny that we see. Mm-hmm. Because it's just so odd to see a person walking around with a piece of tree in their hand. You yeah. Know, it's just... And you've just never seen anything like Mm -hmm. that in this kind of genre. You might have seen something strange like that in a comedy, in a funny slapstick thing at that time on TV, but not walking into the scene on a whodunit. It's just like, what? Where am I? (laughs) So she serves to like just kind of disorientate everyone. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, at that point... She's a little bit of a laughing stock, but I think she gets her she gets her dues in terms of her status within the town and the show and the mythology later on. Yeah. Um but yeah, literally flicking the switch from light to dark, that duality. Mm-hmm. And uh and being someone that's understanding this occult use of energy. And, uh, yeah, she's, uh, she's awesome. I love her. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I do too. And she really brings, like, literally light and darkness at the same time. Like, in the meeting. Like, excuse me. Yeah, it's, um, it's interesting just how everything's always kind of layered. Like, I think, um, mm-hmm. you know, even in the opening credits, you know, there's a there's an image of nature followed by an image of like the um, the the logging factory or the um, the uh, the mill. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's like it, it coexists literally on top of each other the whole time. And um, yeah, and that that's just kind of how I see the nature of reality in in Twin Peaks, where there's mm-hmm. this there's this physical space and then there's this internal space where, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's like the, um, the internal lodge space kind of thing, um, tends to show up more as a delusion. Um, you know, it's like, it's like an influence of what you want, um, kind of showing, um, 
we, we see it within characters just in general about how they want the world to be. And they're mm -hmm. kind of behaving almost like it is that already. And mm -hmm. um, eventually, um, in some cases, you know, it's like how the, um, how the credits fade from one to another. It's like it, after a slow fade, it tends to become more real or less real, depending on where we're at. Um, like we can, um, we can see that almost with, um, like the more, the more involved with Twin Peaks as we get, like the more like Lodge stuff kind of takes hold and it kind of changes Cooper's perception. Like right now he thinks it's like a, a noir movie <laughs> from back in the day. And, you know, he's mm -hmm. just like, you know, like let's solve the crime. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, like the more, the more involved he gets, the more layers that, um, land on him. It's almost like the fog of Twin Peaks that um, Tamara Preston talks about at the end of Final Dossier, um, which kind of comes and goes. Um, mm -hmm. Like, it, it, yeah, it's it's like the, the longer the longer Cooper stays in Twin Peaks, the more the more that reality kind of takes hold over him and becomes more and more real. And I think mm. we see that, like, gradually, like, from, you know, diff different people within Twin Peaks are either more or less influenced by this reality. Like, um, mm -hmm. like Margaret, you know, she's, she's already there, but we don't know why or how. We just know she looks kind of weird compared to everybody else. And um, there's a lot of delusion um, over Twin Peaks, like, already. Like, we, we see it with Johnny Horn, for sure. I we certainly do, and yeah. I have some things to say about mm -hmm. Johnny because we need to talk about Johnny. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, something that we also want to explore in this series is mm -hmm. um, the cinematic influences of uh, Lynch in his work, and also possibly in the you know actual writing of it with Frost as well. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, Twin Peaks was this incredible movement in tv in a way but it started a movement towards a more cinematic use of long-form storytelling but yeah so i mean we first meet johnny uh in a very interesting way which got me thinking about the links between twin peaks and kubrick and obviously there's this special relationship let's say this this mutual respect that we know about between Lynch and Kubrick. Um, mm -hmm. The, in, you know, the story goes that Kubrick actually said to Lynch as a young filmmaker that, um, that Eraserhead was his favorite film. Yeah. Not favorite film at the time, his favorite film. This is what Lynch has been very careful to make sure we know. <laughs> so, um, there is this this influence that you could potentially even say possibly we see in later Kubrick. I would argue maybe Eyes Wide Shut, but we won't go there for now. <laughs> so yes, we need to talk about Johnny. We first see Johnny, we get this Hitchcockian sweeping waterfall shot of the Great Northern Hotel, which we'll see over and over. And we see Sylvie, Sylvia and Audrey 
sitting, sulking at the table within their home. We hear a discombobulating knocking or beating sound in the other room. Is it a piece of machinery or something else? Then we cut to a shot of Johnny Horn in his room upstairs. He's wearing a Native American headdress, possibly of the Nez Perce tribe, and knocking his head monotonously on a doll's house. This uncanny shot of the proportions of Johnny and this doll's house and the headdress, all very strange. The parallels that spring to mind for me that can't be ignored come from Lynch and Frost's Great Northern Hotel and Kubrick's Overlook Hotel of his 1977 film, The Shining. Um, for those of us who've subsequently learned about Twin Peaks' more meta story, his cancellations, criminally berated prequels and all the rest, um, but that pilot would be Lynch's triumph in fusing film and TV in this uh, blurring of the of the mediums and moods and scale. Um, Native American trauma is widely believed to be coded pretty heavily in The Shining. That's one of the major theories about the film. Um, we see fairly explicit use of Native American artwork in, in the hotel. We see shots of Jack, Wendy and Danny in front of certain uh, Native American uh, artwork or the cans, the Calumet cans with an indigenous tribal chief clad in a mohawk on, in behind Jack. Uh, we hear the hotel manager say that it, the, ho the hotel was built on a native Indian burial ground which became this trope, um, often seen in Stephen King but became a bit of a, a trope later on as well. Um, so there's this sense of collective trauma and collective pain that I think it's not too much of a leap to say that the Great Northern has a little bit of the Overlook Hotel within it. Mm -hmm. I mean, just ask Josie who ends up haunting a doorknob yeah. <laughs> eventually. Um, but I'll be looking for Kubrickian Easter eggs throughout the entirety of Twin Peaks and just, mm -hmm. and just looking out for that tonally, stylistically. Um, like I say, I think the two directors borrowed a little bit from each, each other in a fanboy, yeah. slightly young and Freud kind of way. Mm -hmm. um, even just in the pilot, we get some really lovely shots of uh, the morgue, the school, um, that are from this famous three-point perspective shot that Kubrick was famous for. Um, but yeah, back to Johnny Horn, he's a bit of a tragic figure. We see him in the season three, tenth episode, which we'll talk about later on, mm -hmm. which brings to mind a different Kubrick work, possibly brings to mind a clockwork orange uh, with Richard Horn yeah. in, in a terrible a scene of assault. Um, but yeah, I would argue that, that there's a little touch of The Shining in the Great Northern, even though it seems cozy and there's lots of firesides and, you know, we're, we're lulled into a false sense of security in Twin Peaks constantly because it's such a seducing, cozy town. You know, you just want to go yeah. there for a holiday, even though you know some dark things happen there. Yeah. Um, so I think we could be looking out for some parallels between mm -hmm. the Overlook and the Great Northern as we go on. 
And Johnny Horn, I think, is another potential example of someone who lives between two worlds. Mm -hmm. And I think this is something that comes up again and again with Twin Peaks is madness or mental illness or, you know, perhaps someone even on the spectrum. We don't know what, what Johnny Horn's problems are. Yeah. Um, but he seems to understand this collective trauma that's underneath the surface of Twin Peaks in a way that his, uh, you know, higher functioning sister and mm -hmm. mother and father who are just living in the, you know, what is seen world do not understand. Yeah. Yeah, while, while Sylvia and Audrey are just, like, staring straight ahead and um, leaving it to Jacoby to, like, stop him from banging his head. Like, uh, I don't know. Uh, there's a yeah. lot of neglect there. But um, it, it's, it's almost like, man. yeah, it's almost like they're feeding into the fact that Johnny's just not quite in the same frequency as everybody else. I mean, mm -hmm. he's sort of attached to what we'll find out later is, like, this... Um, big statement on colonialism that mm -hmm. um that frost and I, I you know lynch but definitely frost uh puts mm. into secret history of twin peaks mm -hmm. um but um it's also we find out um oh man i can't remember if it's a deleted scene or not but um audrey mentions how uh johnny had a head injury when he was a kid and um you know, like head injuries with Lynch is a big theme just in general. But yeah. in this case, like not only does he have that, he's got a disguise over him. Like we, we were talking about with Josie and, uh, you know, painting a face over her face. You know, it's like all the mm -hmm. all the people that seem a little bit off all have like a weird. A weird thing that we're just not going to see in anybody else. And, you know, Johnny, like mm -hmm. he, he makes his obvious that like he kind of almost mm -hmm. There's like this kinship with this culture that just got completely sublimated by by the um, the settlers, the 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 people that um, mm -hmm. formed Twin Peaks. Yeah, or as Jack Torrance in The Shining would call, the white man's burden. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's definitely some some pretty strong overtones of of colonialism and the effects. Um, mm -hmm. You know, unfortunately. We only really see Hawk representing indigenous culture. We see, yeah. I think, one other indigenous um, American in the series. Um, I think a lady later on who's showing Cooper. Yeah. Um, around a cottage. Yeah, Irene yeah. Bernard, uh, the dog farm. But, uh, you know, the Great Northern is just so in the style of Native American mm -hmm artwork it's it seems to me you know like ben horn's office is just completely clad in yeah tapestries it just seems to me too neat a connection yeah um and, and you can just find so too. many nice little little connections like the scene in uh, the shining where jack is having an interview with the hotel manager there's actually a copy of young's red book quite clearly in the shot on the side um, and that was written while Jung was in the midst of a allegedly a psychotic break um, and detailed ahead um, ahead of its time theories on hypnagogic states mm -hmm. and states between consciousness and unconsciousness, hallucinations. And um, I think we see this collective conscious trauma in Twin Peaks so clearly it's 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 like a character almost in in the yeah. town. 
but you just you get characters like Margaret who can master that and articulate it mm-hmm. and knowingly live between those states and then you get the the collateral damage of of more uh, vulnerable characters perhaps like Laura or uh, Johnny Horn um who are you know Nadine who mm-hmm. are yes touched by this knowing of collective pain mm-hmm. but they don't they haven't got the capacity or knowledge to actually understand that they're tapping into something bigger than themselves yeah and living in twin peaks like it's kind of hard to know like you know like when your um your situation like um if you if you live in like nebraska you understand like what a really cold strong winter is gonna be like you know like you but but if you're from california you're just never going to really understand like how how to you know drive a car in winter even mm. like it's like there's these um situational things that like if you grow up in twin peaks like it's just going to be weird and it's just going to be weird but but the weirdness isn't weird because you know you almost like instinctively know how to navigate it and then, yes, you've got, like we said before, you've got the way of reading it as this is literal spirits and lodge spirits working, or then mm-hmm. you've got the symbolic, metaphorical uh, way of reading it where, you know, Johnny's just had a head injury and isn't yeah. well. Mm-hmm. Um, but there does seem to be a theme throughout of the characters that have been touched by mental illness or trauma mm-hmm. having much more of a connection to that unseen realm. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like the people who are able to believe in their wants more than their needs tend to be touched Mm -hmm. by this, Um, Mm -hmm. tend to be touched by a lot of space. And then wants and needs become a huge, huge uh, focal point for for things as we go on, too. Um, Absolutely. You know, beyond a a scene with Audrey and Cooper. (laughs) Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, but I would argue that I think although Johnny Horn is definitely a background character, this introduction to him is so laden with some symbolism. Yes. And uh, even just having him looking down on a doll's house, which would, you know, mm-hmm. having a perspective of this symbol of a family home, yeah. you know, a safe place, mm-hmm. and uh, knocking his head against it with trauma to suggest that the family home isn't as safe as we are led to believe. Yeah. Going on with this wants and needs sort of idea, um, I tend to think that um, the Twin Peaks Lodge space is a frequency more than anything else. And there's like a, a, a range of frequency that we see especially come out in season two, where there's mm-hmm. like this dichotomy between love and fear. So we have um, in... I, I would say, like, Johnny Horn would be kind of falling under, like, a frequency of fear-based stuff because he is disconnected. It's almost like he lives in that little house um, that's, like, completely cordoned off from everything else. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, like, we'll see it with characters like Nadine in the future. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, even Josie's somehow caught up in it. We'll find out um, with mm-hmm. with her final scenes. Um, Audrey later on as yeah. well, confined to a house. Yeah, and it seems like it shows up. Like, you know, maybe 
maybe not all the time, but like Nadine, she's almost in like a um, a love-based delusion so she can heal. And there's there's all these things that we'll see that, you know, it's like the, the, um, the dream or the lodge space. Um, it like, it's not exactly positive or negative. It's both, mm -hmm. but it is disconnected from reality. Well, is it though? Or is it showing us and the characters the true reality? Yeah. Showing the characters their shadow? Well, their... yeah. Yeah, it's it's more like the internal reality that's like the the internal reality that you use to navigate the physical reality. Mm -hmm. It's something yeah. more along those lines. I, I don't know if I can uh there there's a lot of new I'm I'm sure it'll come out over the years <laughs> with with how I can explain it piece by piece. But I think right now we kind of were. OK, so Donna was recast <laughs> in Firewalk yes. with me, but it's a physical representation in in a town where the worldview can be actually seen in a way that I was just describing, where, like, the internal is kind of uh, being expressed through the external. Or the, the internal becomes external because of all the, the lodge space portals and whatever else you would like to say. And yeah. um, the strangest thing is that because Laura Flynn Boyle didn't want to come back for Fire Walk with me, yet Donna was an integral character... We can, so actually, she didn't want to come back, or she—I um, thought she wasn't invited. No, no, she was, but she, there was um, I, the the word is that she had a, a another movie, kind of like how Sherilyn Fenn also had like a, a scheduling conflict, and yeah. um, you know, it's like whatever you want to believe about you know why else she didn't want to come or whatever that that's the official reason, and um, mm -hmm. yeah, so. So we're um, we're left with Moira Kelly and Lara Flynn Boyle both being Donna, and because of this weird state of reality that Twin Peaks is, it's worth considering. Like, was was there something within between Fire Walk with me and this um, and this um, original Twin Peaks that? actually changed physically Donna <clears throat> good I good I mean it's definitely a good line of inquiry because we see even in the original season uh, come season two Donna is suddenly morphing into <clears throat> Laura yeah and you could argue that that Moira Shelley who they cast as the fire walk with me version of Donna is mm. so much um sweeter and gentler and more innocent looking and the way she plays Donna is is that you know you can just see her being one of the Hayward sisters whereas mm -hmm. I think uh as Donna progresses through the original run she becomes like this kind of femme fatale vamp mm -hmm. figure um so it's almost like, she, yeah, she's she's changing yeah. <laughs> throughout. And I think that was intentional. I think that was definitely part of what was written into Firewalk with me is that Laura didn't want Donna to follow in her footsteps and become like her. Yeah. Um, but obviously with, with Laura herself, we get her appearing as Maddie. We get 
various instances of people being different, mm -hmm. appearing differently. <clears throat> you know, we get uh, we get Catherine <laughs> appearing as a as a man yeah. at one point in in terrible, uh -huh. uh, slightly offensive uh, drag. Yeah. But <laughs> so I think. What's great about Twin Peaks is something, you know, that's a behind the scenes problem that mm -hmm. our actress can't come back for the prequel when we're scheduled to make this film does fit with the way the season, the series works with, with how slippery characters are, mm -hmm. you know, who are they? And that yeah. is a very Lynchian, you know, stalwart of his, of his canon is, is, People can be two different people at the same time. They can appear completely differently, and you mm -hmm. can't really can't really say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's an interesting debate. Everybody's always like, "Who's the better, Donna?" And like, I know. At this point, it's almost like which one's the real one. Well, yeah. Yeah. I think that's an errand's fool trying to answer that. <laughs> yeah, but I'll I'll throw one out there. I think that that the Donna we get in Fire Walk With Me is, and Laura is probably a strong sender. You can see how I could get there, right? Yeah. Yeah, so I think that the Moira Kelly Donna is probably more along the lines of the the Donna that Laura wants her to be. And like we can see later on when she wears the sunglasses and everything, you know, don't wear my stuff. You know, it's like, yeah. if if Laura needs Donna to be such and such a person, like, are you my friend? Like, that mm. big wake-up scene at the end where, like, um, you know, Laura is just realizing that um, the Leland and Bob are connected. Um, she, the first thing she does is run over to Donna and say, are you my friend? And I almost mm. think that you can make a case that... Um, that moment for Donna, that was her wake up. Like, you know, it's like, am I her friend? Mm. You know, it's like, am I really her friend or am I just the friend that she wants me to be? Mm, that's a really interesting point, actually. I think, yeah, you're right. I think in Fire Walk With Me, we're seeing Laura's version of events. It's from mm -hmm. her perspective. So, yeah, it follows that the Donna that we see is soft and innocent and um, safe you know, mm -hmm. um, maybe the kind of girl that Laura wishes she could be yeah. if she hadn't had her innocence taken away from mm -hmm. her. Um, and I think that's a good point because we, you know, what we know of Donna's story post the season out of the, you know, confines of what we see on screen within mm -hmm. Secret History, uh, Donna's trajectory follows more of a, a Laura-esque trajectory than than the Donna we see in Fire Walk With Me. Mm -hmm. you know, she ends up, uh, you'll have to help me out. How does she end up? I know she's not great. In, <laughs> Goes uh, to New York, becomes yeah, a some, Something along those queen. lines, yeah. She kind of like dates celebrities and all that, but then at the end she finally finds herself and uh, settles oh. down with her dad as a, um, as a uh, doctor like like basically helping whether she like becomes a nurse or whatever like she ends up okay. helping with her dad's practice at the end i'm glad she i'm glad she ends up happy that yeah. makes me happy i thought it was a bit of a a sad story 
Um, yeah. but we'll get to that in the secret history yeah. of Twin Peaks. Yeah, all in due time. But I kind of think that um, because she was, because she and Sarah and Leland were basically the three main people that understood that Laura died before anybody said anything. Um, I feel like she's so connected to that, that like at this point, she doesn't know who she is yet. You know, she's gonna mm -hmm. try on being a vamp. She's gonna try on being, you know, like an investigator with James. She's gonna yeah, try, she's, right. she's mm -hmm. gonna try this and that. And like, you know, like she's gonna find herself over the course of the next, um, you know, however many years you wanna count all the way through the end of Final Dossier. And yeah. like, it's it's almost like we're seeing Donna beginning her her actual investigation of herself in her in her um, Lara Flynn Boyle incarnation. Yeah, and I think she she takes on a lot of Laura's traits because she misses her and she's mm -hmm. grieving, and that's another way that Laura's ghost sort of lives. Yeah. It's through, it's through her, which I think is a quite an accurate depiction of, of, of grief in a way. Yeah. And there's another way that um, we kind of see her breaking out. And um, we, we see it a lot in this, in this, um, in the pilot episode, there's a whole bunch of these secret relationships these um mm. these places under the surface it's almost like another way of of uh what you're saying about the internal and the external uh selves like the the people who are maybe afraid of like what the world's gonna think of them they um mm. they find a safe place where they can be honest with themselves like we see it with ed and norma where they mm. finally talk about their you know like how they really feel about each other um, and we see it with James and Donna for sure, uh, because like when they finally come clean in that, in that one, uh, dark scene where they're burying the necklace, you know, it's like, we mm. hear about all kinds of stuff about Laura and like, you know, even how mm. she said that, uh, Bobby told her he killed a guy. And it's like all these, all these truths are finally coming out with each other. And, uh, mm. they finally get to catch up with like their reactions about Laura dying even. And, um, mm. you know, it's like once, once they express their fears about all that, then, you know, the first thing they figure out is that they're really into each other. It's almost like, mm. you know, being vulnerable allows them to become closer. Yeah. And honestly, yeah. that even, that even works with like Josie and Harry, you know, it's like, uh, Josie, like, you know, she's, um, She's obviously affected by the Laura thing. And um, Leslie Lincoln Gladder, um, one of the directors of the series, she's convinced that Josie actually really likes Harry. So I'll take that as a, <laughs> as a point in my favor for that one. But, um, you know, it's like Josie feels safe with Harry and it's the mm -hmm. only time she can admit that she's afraid. Yeah. But yeah, it's a theme that we'll see throughout of this soap mm -hmm. opera element of secrets and lies and affairs and uh yeah people people presenting a mask to the world and then there's a sort of reality underneath mm -hmm. um 
so we are nearly nearing the end of this first episode looking at the pilot of Twin Peaks and we asked a screenwriter who had never seen Twin Peaks to give us her hot take. So this is a quote from Emma DeVette, screenwriter of Glass House, which just premiered in London at the Sci-Fi Film Festival. And her feelings after watching the pilot of Twin Peaks as a Twin Peaks virgin. The first episode of Twin Peaks is both snug and unsettling. It feels exactly like semantic satiation. Say a word too many times and it becomes a sound. It's the familiar and nostalgic made strange. The dialogue is recognizable as trite family drama or crime procedural, but it's stripped back and left slightly off kilter. It functions so perfectly as a formulaic genre show that at a script level, it's almost impossible to see how he's doing it. How something so structurally standard on the page is being transmuted into something so strange on screen. It's like coming back to find the furniture in your room rearranged just slightly. Everything belongs, but something's not quite right. So thank you, Emma, for your hot take on the pilot of Twin Peaks. We will be asking for her opinion later down the line as she progresses with her own Twin Peaks journey. All right, and all that remains to be said is you have been listening to the Blue Rose Task Force podcast, a production of Ruminations Radio Network and TV Obsessive Radio. Yes, and if you resonate with what you're hearing, please do subscribe, rate, review our show. And if you're watching this on YouTube, you know what to do. Hit the subscribe button and the alarm bell. We'd love to also connect with you on Twitter at Blue Rose TF Pod and Instagram and Facebook at simply Blue Rose Task Force. You can find me at JPB underscore Little Green on Twitter and John underscore the underscore Peaky on Instagram. And you can find me on both Twitter and Instagram at E11E Sounds. Visit RuminationsRadioNetwork.com for additional great shows such as Retro Futures Culture and Cinephile Hissy Fits. And find any number of classic 25 Years Later Twin Peaks articles and content on many other TV shows and music at tvobsessive.com. If you want to be part of our monthly mailbag Patreon episodes, send your burning questions and passionate feedback to Blue Rose Task Force Podcast at gmail.com. We'll see you next week as we cover episode one, the second overall episode of Twin Peaks. And until then, listeners, I'll see you in my dreams. Deepen, expand, deepen, deepen, the Thank you.